0: Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Make us today a listening people. Fill our hearts with joy. Change our minds and enable us to be those who live exclusively for Jesus, our Lord and King. In his name we pray. Amen. Trafalgar Square lies at the very heart of London. It's a major international tourist attraction. You've probably been there. And in the middle is the world-famous Nelson Column, celebrating the great naval hero, Lord Horatio Nelson, his great sea battle with Trafalgar, in which Britain defeated the French. The square was laid out in the 1840s with plinths around the different sides. And on three corners are three statues. The greats are there, King George IV on horseback, and then a military commander from Britain's India Empire, General Charles Napier, and then Major General Henry Havelock. And the fourth plinth was intended for another figure, King William. But the money ran out. And for 150 years, the famous empty plinth has remained without anybody on it. In 1999, it was decided that the fourth and empty plinth should be filled, but that raises the question of who should we put on it? There was considerable debate. And then, as the millennium was about to start, it was decided that the fourth plinth should be occupied by Jesus Christ. It was called the Millennium Project. A sculptor was chosen, his name Mark Wallinger, and he created a statue called Echo Home, Latin for behold the man taken from the gospel according to John. The statue was life-sized, modeled on a young Londoner, cast in sanded polyester resin, and set in white against the black bronze of the other sculptures. But what was striking about the statue, you can have a look at it later on uh, Google, is that this naked man, life-size, was dwarfed by the bombastic depictions of military power and empire, his hands tied behind his back, his eyes closed as if he had to occupy another place because this world was overwhelming for him. The sculptor Wallinger was asked, why did you do it like that? Why make Christ so small, he answered, to depict the powerlessness of Christ in our modern world. A modern Christ, cut down to size, almost invisible, easily ignored. As the tourists walk past, they wouldn't have noticed it. As the buses go past, they would not have seen it. A modern Jesus, an irrelevant king, because that's how so many Americans think. According to a recent Gallup poll in the last 20 years, there's been an acceleration in the drop of church attendance, a 20% drop since 1999. The point is clear, Christ may have held sway in Victorian times, or maybe back in the 50s with Billy Graham, but if Jesus thinks he's really king today, he needs to think again a reduced, diminished, ignored, irrelevant Jesus. Well, this morning, Mark has something of a challenge for us, if that's our thinking, because the Jesus of history is the God of the universe. And Mark is going to show us that this morning in three powerful pictures, each of them glorious. And as we leave church, our hearts are going to be filled with joy and our wills are going to be transformed by this extraordinary king. Last week, if you were here, we saw that the king was crowned king. He came out of the water and the the spirit descended upon him. He was Messiahed or Christed. It was a moment of high drama. And, of course, when any new king arrives or ruler uh, arrives, we want to know What's the shape of their rule going to be like? It's like that when a US president is elected. The world desperately wants to know, now that the new president has arrived, what's the manifesto? What's the program for governments? What will his policies be on the southern border and on guns? What will his policies be on abortion and in the South China Sea and with the Iranian uh, nuclear deal and in the Rust Belt? And what will this new president be like? Well, in verse 15, we discover this king's manifesto. For now, this king speaks. The kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. The mission of this newly crowned king on earth is to establish his kingdom in the universe. This is great news. It's Isaiah 52, verse 7. Because Isaiah saw That one day one would come to preach good news, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation to Zion, your God reigns. The good news is that the reign of God is here. And the reign of God has come to bring us peace. He's taken away the judgment of God. He's ended the exile, and now God's people at last can live in peace and prosperity forever. And if I was a handle, the mezzo-soprano would now burst out with that wonderful song, How Beautiful Are the Feet. That's what the king is going to do, and here's the response, repent. The word in the Greek is metanoia, um, meta For change, as in metamorphosis or metaphysics, Noia means minds. Because if the king has come to rule over the world, then he is going to have to rule over my world. And that's going to involve a change of mind, as I no longer regard myself as king over my universe, but acknowledge him to be king over all the universe. In fact, Lord Nelson He was an extraordinary admiral, uh, led in the Napoleonic Wars, and always defeated the French Navy. He was a very gracious admiral, but very uncompromising and firm. On one occasion, he took the surrender of an opposite admiral from the flagship of the uh, French. And as the other admiral came on board, he had a slight smirk. His sword was uh, swaying, in its, uh, in its holster, and he put out his hand, and he said to Lord Nelson, well, I surrender. Very graciously, but very firmly, totally uncompromisingly, Nelson was overheard to say, your sword first, sir, and then your hand. That's repentance. And yet the skeptic will wonder, is this Jesus really sovereign and in control of this world, yes, says Mark, with three amazing snapshots now, as we marvel at the extent of this rule, and as we see it, we will be those who want to repent and believe this gospel. Because first, notice, this king has sovereign power to call a new people God's long-awaited king, the Messiah king of 2 Samuel 7, is here. But in verses 16 to 20, there's something of a surprise. And it is where this king is. You'd expect a king to go to the capital city. Certainly after 2024, when the new president is elected, he'll be in Washington, D.C., or on the lawn of the White House, taking the 21-gun salutes. He will be inspecting the guard of Honor. But where's this king? In verse 16, notice that this king is on a beach somewhere in Galilee. And that's a surprise. It's odd. The geography student will tell us that he's way up north in northern Galilee, where this is the impure part of the nation, a multicultural melting pot, non-Jewish habitants, the Phoenicians, Syrians, and Sidonians. The metropolitan Jewish elite would despise them. But the theologian who knows his Old Testament would turn to the geography student and say, aha, because 700 years before, God made a big promise about this area. This location would be the place to which God's king would come. It's the Isaiah 9 Christmas reading. In the future. He will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The lands of Nebulun and Naphtali, devastated by the Assyrian army, would be uniquely honored as Messiah came. And this is the clue that God has now come, not just for Israel, but for the whole of the world. The command that Jesus issues here is stark, follow me, he says to these men who've never met him before. Literally, get behind me, and the command is followed by a promise, I will make you fishers of men. I will make you an echo of Genesis 12 and the promise that God made to Abraham when he said that one day he would make a nation that would bless the whole nation of the world. Do you see what's happening here? It's extraordinary. Not just the calling of two men, no. This is the beginning of a new people, a new nation, a new humanity. And while we're on this, Jesus calling these two fishermen, it's just worth pointing out that this is the God who doesn't call the elites. The gospel is not the reserve of the upper middle class professional graduates. Isn't it striking that the kingdom begins with two blue-collar guys? Their hands are dirty. They would have to go home every night and shower because their wives would say, you still stink of fish. The kingdom of God doesn't begin or, or, or just remain with the Ivy League Harvard scholar, the corporate professional or the professor of divinity but with these working-class, blue-collar guys. But it's the authority of Jesus. When he calls, people obey. His summons is effective. The call of God is irresistible, efficacious. There's no delay. Verse 18, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Verse 20, immediately he called them, and they left their father. And it's quite a career turnaround, isn't it? Verse 16, Simon is Peter, his brother Andrew, verse 19, two other brothers, James and John. These working-class blue-collar guys, fishermen, the family business, will now be transformed by Jesus into authoritative apostles. And actually, you're holding a Bible that contains seven of their books. A gospel and three letters from John, the book of Revelation, 1 John, Second John, Third John, Gospel of John, and then two letters from this guy, Simon, who is Peter. Authority to call a new people. But actually, if you're going to form a new nation, if you're going to call a new people and it's going to be a sovereign nation, there does need to be protection from enemies And that nation does need to be sovereign over its own affairs. So what about cosmic evil? What about the enemy, Satan? It's one thing to call a new people, but does this king really have authority over their enemies, Satan and the Roman Empire? Yes, says Mark. Sovereign power to call a new people, but second notice, sovereign power to defeat cosmic evil. Because the first duty of any government is to keep its people safe. And facing America today are multiple threats, domestically and internationally, in the geopolitical picture. There is homegrown domestic terror, then the rogue states like Iran or North Korea. All the geopolitical threats, what is Putin going to do on the Ukrainian border? And then all the way down into Africa with Al-Shabaab in Kenya, the Taliban in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda in Syria, Boko Haram in Somalia. The first duty of government is the defense of the realm and keeping its people safe. And so did you know that in recent years, The Pentagon's total tally for war, preparations for war, and the impact of war comes to more than $1.25 trillion. It's why your taxes have been going up. The average American spends or pays more than $2,000 per person towards this. $1.25 trillion, the Pentagon's budget, is almost more than the entire GDP of Britain. Can uh, this king deliver us from evil? Because we pray, deliver us from evil, but can he? Come to verse 23, Jesus is midway through the sermon, there is a moment of explosive drama. Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. By the way, it's an important theological point. Whenever the kingdom of God comes, whenever the kingdom of God advances, there is always satanic attack. Perhaps we should get ready for that here at Lydie's in these next few months. There'll be a disturbance. It is striking, isn't it, that the first voice to identify Jesus is a demon. And what the demon sees is his imminent destruction. In the ancient world, if you want to get authority over someone, you name them. That's what's going on here. This is battle. He names Jesus to try and capture authority over Jesus. It's as if in verse 23, we're being taken backstage, behind the curtain on the stage of human history, to the realities that are going on behind stage that we are so oblivious to because behind the stage of human history is a cosmic battle and a terrifying enemy, Satan, whose work is to destroy. In the Garden of Eden, his great work was to lure humanity into evil, rather like the Pied Piper of Hamlin as he lured us into disobedience and sin. And then, like the children's capture from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, he locks the cage and takes us away as captives forever, jangling the keys as he imprisons us under sin and death. But the mission of God's King on earth, Isaiah 61, is to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. That's His mission. Can He do it? Verse 25, yes. Jesus rebuked him saying, silent, be still, come out of him. Verse 26, the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice came out of him. The command is really stark be quiet. Literally, close your mouth or shut your mouth. The Greek word implies a muzzle. Here is a Rottweiler being muzzled. Shut up, put on a leash. And tamed, rendered speechless. This is the power of Jesus over evil at one command, cosmic evil is neutralized. And it's not a partial victory, but a comprehensive defeat, convulsing, shrieking. This is the fulfillment of Genesis 3 verse 15, the serpent crusher has arrived. This is conquest over evil and forever. In his 24 uh, years in office, Saddam Hussein's secret police were charged with protecting his power. The regime terrorized the public, ignoring human rights. And obsessed with security, he moved from palace to palace, brutalizing the people of Iraq. It is estimated that over 700,000 people faced his reign of terror through the bath party, and were placed into mass graves with forced disappearances. Terrifying. But soon after the American invasion in March 2003, he went into hiding. And on December the 13th, 2003, US soldiers found him hiding in a six to eight foot foxhole, nine miles outside his hometown of Tikrit. A man, once obsessed with hygiene, was found unkempt, bushy beard matted hair, red eyes, and he didn't arrest, uh, he didn't resist arrest. It was a pathetic sight, And one soldier at the scene described him as, quote, "A man resigned to his fate." That's the picture here: The great terror defeated, conquest and deliverance. And this is a snapshot of the end. Satan has been decisively defeated at the cross. Now, this is a much needed corrective, I think, to an idea called dualism that we all slip into. And the idea of dualism is that in the universe there are two cosmic superpowers of equal authority and weight, rather like China and America, and they're slogging it out geopolitically. I suppose it might be a little bit like uh, having a a Mexican standoff in a western. We're not entirely sure how this is going to work. I mean, are the good guys gonna win, (coughs) or will it be the bad guys? Or maybe it's a bit like later on today. Here we are on Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, it could go either way, couldn't it? Are you supporting the Rams uh, or the Bengals? I mean, they're gonna be slogging it out at 6.30 later on Today, it could go either way, but it's not like that in the universe. It's not God versus Satan, and maybe Satan is going to win. No, Jesus is king. He has complete authority over his universe. He is Christus Victor, the victorious Christ, and Satan is just like a Rottweiler with the muzzle on the leash and can only ever harm if allowed to do so by Almighty God for his purposes and plans in his world." This is a trailer of the end. The promise at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3.15 is that God would defeat Satan. Here he is. And for the Christians of Mark's day, this is great news, huddled in their catacombs, AD 65, under the terror of imperial Rome, wondering who will deliver them from evil. Their children huddling next to them for fear of their lives. And I wonder what evil lurks in your life. How is evil menacing you and raising its horrible head? Is it the accusing voice of accusation, a painful family division, persecution in the workplace, fear about the future, Don't fear Satan, he is a defeated enemy and a paper tiger, the conquest. And can you see in verse 21, verse 27, verse 22 that this is a conquest secured through the word of Jesus. The emphasis all the way through is on his word, verse 21, his teaching. Verse 22, the people are amazed. Verse 27, they are amazed. That word implies a panic, almost an awe touched with fear. But what they're amazed about is the teaching and the word of Jesus. And can I tell you that there are so many things about this church that we think is amazing. There is your incredible warm-heartedness. We've been absolutely bowled over by that your absolute desire to engage wholeheartedly in global mission. But the third thing that is really impressive about this church is that you have been, are, and intend to stay a church centered in on the Word of Jesus Christ. All the Bible for all of life. This is a church of the Word of Jesus Christ. And that's right. Because the way this kingdom will come is not through a political jihad, or lobbying on the hill, this is a kingdom that will come through the word of Jesus Christ in all of its power. And as the Reformation raged and Martin Luther faced the terrors of the opposition against him, as the whole of Europe convulsed with demonic attack against his biblical reforms, he wrote a hymn called, A mighty fortress is our God. Listen to this. And though this world, with devils filled, should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us, the Prince of Darkness Grim. We tremble not for Him, His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The way this kingdom is established on earth is through the word. Keep preaching it in your workplace and to your unbelieving family. Keep holding on to it in the life of your own family and with your friends here at church. Keep trusting the word of Jesus. Verse 38, he's a preaching king and we need to be a listening people. If the first snapshot then is sovereign power to call a new humanity, the second snapshot, sovereign power to defeat cosmic evil. Do you want the last one? Here it is. Sovereign power to restore a broken creation. According to the World Health Association, there are over 10,000 different diseases in the world. Many of them are called orphan diseases, which means that they're rare, but there are only 500 diseases which can be cured. Did you know that? The Centers for Medical uh, Care and Medical Services and Medicare report that in 2020, prescription drug expenditure in the United States came to 348 billion dollars. That's the GDP of South Africa and Denmark. The point is, many of us are sick, and I wouldn't do this now, but if I was to ask you to put your hand in the air if you are taking drugs for any kind of medical problem at all, I'm reckoning that the vast majority of us would put our hands in the air. It's just part of life, isn't it? Sickness. But under the old covenant, sickness was more than that. It was a sign of God's curse. In Deuteronomy 28, the curse of God on sin was seen in disease. The Lord will plague you with disease until he has destroyed you from the land that you are entering into to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation. But 750 years before Jesus came, a promise was made that the sign that Messiah had come would be a reversal of disease, the picture of salvation. Listen to this, Isaiah thirty-five. The desert and parched land will be glad, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom, it will burst into bloom, it will rejoice, and the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame deer will leap, and the mute will shout for joy. Well, here it is. Jesus arrives. He goes to the mother-in-law of Simon and she is sick. And with one word and one touch the sickness is taken away. Fame soon spreads and then the whole ha- the whole town arrives at the door and he heals them of many diseases verse 34. In the ancient world to be sick was devastating. There was no social security number or Medicare. There was no health insurance. So, if you were sick, you couldn't work. If you couldn't work, you couldn't eat. If you couldn't eat, you and your family died. God on earth has come, and he's come to heal, and he's come to restore. I picture the whole town at the door. It's gridlocked. Ambulances are just arriving outside the house. The picture is horrific as people who are crippled in wheelchairs and can't walk are brought to Jesus. It actually stands as a powerful picture of the dysfunctional, crippling, handicapping nature of sin. But notice the healings are immediate. He came, he took her by the hand, he lifted her and the fever left her. There's no referral to a specialist. She's not going to the Rothman Institute or being taken for x-rays or surgery or spinal injections. It is immediate. Verse 31, notice the healings are undisputable. The fever left her and she began to serve them. And notice they're comprehensive. It's not that Jesus is a specialist and he can, well, heal you of asthma and and do the lung stuff, but, but he's not very good with cardiology. Jesus comprehensively heals. They brought to him all who were sick, and the whole city was gathered. Verse 34, he healed many who were sick with various diseases. This picture is of a return to Eden. It's the Eden thing all over again, only better. We're talking about a new humanity with cosmic evil defeated and sickness taken away forever. All of this is achieved on the cross where Jesus takes our penalty and rises triumphantly from the grave. But what this is, is a snapshot of the end. Because our two great fears are indeed evil and sickness. In fact, the whole of our life is a terrifying journey against evil and sickness. Well, now imagine a world where all evil is defeated and all sickness is reversed. In fact, John Piper, the theologian, tries to write a poem about heaven that captures the beauty of this picture here. Let me just read it to you and see if this helps. He's in heaven and picturing this new creation, of perfect healing forever and the restoration of gods. I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life. I took a glance around the golden grass. I saw my dog, old Blackie fast. As she could come, she leaped the stream almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy, and everywhere I turned and saw a wonder there. A a big man running on the lawn, that's old John, young, with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing, the dumb can lift their voice to sing, the diabetic eats at will, the coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk, the deaf can hear, the cancer-ridden, bone is clear, arthritic joints are lithe and free, and every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand the love and sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. Don't lose heart, however hard your life is. Keep your eyes on this picture, a new creation, a humanity gathered, and cosmic evil defeated, and all pain and suffering gone secured in Jesus' saving death, triumphant resurrection, glorious ascension, it will be ours at his return at the end of the age. In Greek mythology, let me end with this, following the war against Zeus, it led to the Titans uh, being defeated forever, and Atlas was one of their gods. Each of the Titan gods were Put down into a prison and an abyss forever, but the punishment for Atlas was different. He was sentenced to carry the universe on his shoulders for all eternity and to hold it up by himself. And I say this because so often in Christian living that's how we feel we are. It's my job to hold up my own Christian life against evil because if I don't resist evil and hold myself up, the universe will fall on me. It's my job to parent amazingly and if I don't parent perfectly and hold up my children spiritually then the whole universe will fall down on me. And it's my job to build the kingdom of God through financial giving and evangelism. And if I don't do that and work hard, the kingdom of God will collapse, the universe will collapse on my shoulders. Can I just say, if you're feeling burdened like that, it is your job to hold up the universe. That's Jesus' job, and he's very good at it. Sovereign power to call a new people. He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Sovereign power to conquer evil forever. It happened on the cross. And sovereign power to restore a broken creation. We pray, come, Lord Jesus, and ache for that day, for the Jesus of the universe is not Mark Wallinger's dwarfed king, but a king of eternal power. Amen.